Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as expert insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in the game. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. On today's pod, we're going to be telling you about exciting, if not controversial, uh, potential for a new venture for the Premier League on foreign shores. We'll also be talking about the controversial words of one Ed Woodward, the executive vice chairman of Manchester United, who um, has been defending the club's recruitment strategy over the last five years, of course, which he's been in charge of. Quick fire round at the end as always, but Duncan... Breaking news to start with, and it's not good news for uh, for the Marco Silva. It seems the vultures are officially hovering over Goodison Park. Um, we can reveal that uh, a well-known agent um, has contacted Maximiliano Allegri's representatives in the last seven days to uh, try and uncover whether or not the Italian would be interested in taking over at Everton in the eventuality that Silva would be sacked. Now, this is a normal process, we should say, and what we can't confirm is whether or not this was a um, instructed approach from Everton. Uh, these things often happen in this way where an agent decides to, to go to uh, a, a candidate and just look to see if he would be interested in order that he could be first in the queue, if you like, to offer that manager to the club uh, if they begin to look for a new head coach. What we do know, Duncan, of course, is that results have not been good for Marco Silva this season so far. Um, obviously, there was a, a serious amount of investment in the summer by the billionaire owner, Farad Moshri. Um, in fact, the team which lost 1-0 at Burnley in the last Premier League match they played before the international break cost around £250 million. Pounds. That was a starting lineup. We've both been in this situation many times with regard to managers. Duncan, how do you see this one playing out? And, of course... How do you assess Silva's performance so far this season? Well, he's not in a good position. If you look at those four consecutive Premier League defeats, um, losing heavily to Bournemouth, uh, losing 2-0 at home to Sheffield United, um, a reasonable performance against uh, Manchester City, but still another defeat, and then losing away to Burnley in the last game before the international break. And there were, there were questions whether Marco Silva would survive the international break. Um, as you say, Everton is a is a it's a, an interesting club and a difficult club because the the spend there under the the Farhad Mashiri fronted um, ownership of the club has been immense. Um, on the last uh, figures put together by the the Football CIS um, Observatory um, Academic Group in Switzerland, they had the the current cost assembly cost in terms of transfer fee commitments of their squad is the best part of half a billion euros, which actually makes them the 11th highest costing squad in um, world football, um, which is a remarkable statistic given uh, where they are in the Premier League 
um, and uh, where they have been in the Premier League for, for recent seasons. There is immense ambition there. There has been, as you can see, a huge amount of money invested in the team, um, but it clearly hasn't been invested well. Um, and now they're paying the, the price of buying the wrong players, um, putting them on salaries that are too high, um, therefore making it difficult for them to shift them out of the squad. And, and we noted in the, at the end of the transfer window some pointed words from Marco Silva about the recruitment that had taken place in the summer um, and he, him pointing out that the, the squad remained imbalanced, um, that several of his better players had been sacrificed um, as part of the buying um, spree and that the net spend in the last uh, window wasn't as high as it was being presented and he basically put a marker down saying you know don't overplay what's been done in this window I'm not happy with the squad how long he can get away with these kind of results I don't, I don't think it, it can be too much longer I think he has to turn it around quickly um, and you have to note that the uh, the trust of the ownership um in terms of agents they're using to recruit has shifted towards Kia Jurabshin. Um, and Kia Jurabshin has a history in the Premier League of um, turning over managers and turning over players at clubs where he has the ear of the owner. Um, he's obviously done that in several places, um, Manchester City being one example, Queen's Park Rangers, another very notable example, at huge cost to those owners. Um, generally unsuccessfully in terms of uh, of what that recruitment meant and being dumped by both of those clubs owners um, as a as a result of uh, of his actions there has to be said he's also um, greatly trusted at Chelsea um, and has been important in in their recruitment and uh, and has sustained that position of importance there so you could argue that there there have been positives in the way he has worked um, as well as those what people at certain clubs would say are, are clear negatives but um, if you're Marco Silva that is a danger sign and um, the approach for Max Allegri um, interesting uh, ambitious um, very a positive thing um, to sell to Everton fans whether they would if they were able to get him properly interested in that post but I think that's the, the catch here um, Max Allegri is in a very strong position he is preparing himself, wants to coach in the Premier League. Um, he uh, is in no rush to return to football. His plan is to see out his sabbatical year where he's still being paid a full salary by Juventus and start somewhere at the beginning of the next season. But for, he tells friends that what he wants is a job where he can succeed. And by succeed, he means challenge for the Premier League, win the Premier League, challenge for the Champions League, win the Champions League. Um, so if you have that criteria, and you have the interest of uh, of some of the you know the top clubs in football, which he he certainly does, then the idea that you choose to go to Everton seems um, something of a long shot. I'd agree with you there on that, Duncan. Um, Silva himself was described this weekend's game against West Ham as a must-win, which is never a good sign either as well as any vultures which are hovering over Goodson Park. And also, I don't know if he's a, 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 sort of a superstitious man, Duncan, but it's almost exactly two years since Everton sacked Ronald Koeman. 
after they were they lost five two at home to Arsenal, leaving them in eighteenth place, which is where they find themselves now, with seven points from eight games played. Now, if you remember, the ownership of Everton were badly criticised for the way that they got rid of Kuman um, without a replacement lined up, and of course they ended up with um, supersized Sam in his Granada parked outside the ground. Um, and that didn't go well either, as far as the fans were concerned. I just wonder that uh, if this is an instructed approach for Allegri, and as you say, I think it's highly ambitious and probably unlikely, um, at least they've learned lessons from Koeman's sacking, and they're trying at least to uh, at least come up with a plan A and a plan B should Silva's sacking become uh, necessary and inevitable. Yes, that's true. And um, if they are going to change, then they you they need to get a top coach in. Um, they need someone who can uh, can take advantage of the of the players that they have got in their squad, um, get better results from them, and um, and help with the direction of travel in terms of recruitment going forward. Um, it has to be noted that uh, although they're in the, the relegation zone, um, only have seven points from their eight games. Were they to win uh, against West Ham this weekend and were Manchester United to um, lose to Liverpool, as the bookmakers have them strong favourites to do, then they would actually be above Manchester United um, at the end of this weekend. Well, I'm sure Toffee fans would be relishing that particular prospect. And we should, of course, point out as well, Duncan, you mentioned Keir Jarabchian and his um, relationships with certain clubs. And once he gets under the skin of a certain club, he can... Uh, work his magic and his influence. He's got one particular client, Felipe Coutinho, currently on loan at Bayern Munich. <laughs> should we even go there? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think we should for, for some very obvious reasons in terms of um, cost, uh, salary and uh, and his last stay in the city of Liverpool. Uh, well, I hear he's still got a house there, so at least it'd be convenient for him. <laughs> I'm not sure that, that house would be very convenient to live in whether were to move from no, uh, in, indeed, indeed. Barcelona to Everton Well we shall also be monitoring um, the games over the weekend as you all will be uh, as well and we shall see what happens with uh, Everton West Ham and Marco Solo's future we'll be obviously discussing that again uh, regarding result come Monday's pod very interesting story now as well, Duncan. Um, obviously, the fixtures for Boxing Day were released to some, um, I think it's fair to say, a lot of ire from, from fans, uh, certainly the ones who travel to uh, away games, etc. Because, of course, Amazon have this package whereby they can show every fixture live uh, on uh, the day after Christmas, uh, different kickoff times, but you can actually uh, buy them. Uh, as, as it were, and you can watch your team play live in box two rather than go out of the house and uh, you know keep, make sure you get your leftover turkey, etc., uh, while you're watching your team play. Now, it's our information that Amazon, of course, are in the bidding for the next round of broadcast rights, as uh, the Premier League expects the other giants uh, of American media in Netflix and Disney to be also. What we know, of course, as well is that the broadcast uh, rights in the last round, it looks like they've peaked. They're hoping to try and at least equal them again. And by bringing in the financial might of the American media industry, they're hoping that that will indeed fire up the um, bidding war uh, along with the traditional broadcasters like Sky and BT Sport. 
As I said, our information is that uh, the Premier League is coming under some pressure. Certainly, it has been suggested to them that one of the ways they can increase the uh, both, I guess it's the profile, but also the revenues um, in terms of broadcast, but also potentially uh, on things like marketing and sponsorship, is by resurrecting uh, the idea of playing a game or more than one game abroad. Now, this isn't like the 39th game that um, the Premier League came up with in 2014, which was uh, overwhelmingly voted down by the Premier League uh, shareholders group, which, of course, is each of the 20 clubs. This would be a regular season game. So one of the 38 rounds, uh, it might be one, it might be two, it might be three games. And we're talking in the future here. This isn't going to be happening necessarily next season. Maybe the season after, maybe the season after that. But they want... I said they want, the broadcasters who will be bidding for the next set of rights want some kind of indication or assurance that the Premier League would be open to having, playing regular season Premier League games in the USA and possibly other places as well. Um, Now, obviously, this is a format which has worked out very well for the NFL. Uh, We've seen it happen again. I think this is the seventh season in a row. They've been playing games in London where NFL teams play regular season matches uh, this year, of course, it's the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which has been hosting them in the last couple of uh, weekends. Uh, I think this is a, a very interesting development, Duncan, and uh, we should also tie in the fact that the new chief executive uh, that the Premier League named uh, or at the beginning of this month, David Pemsel, is a expert in uh, broadcast marketing. He was um, marketing director for ITV for five years before then spending eight years at Guardian Media Group where he turned a very loss-making media um, platform into a profitable one. And that's one of the reasons uh, in particular why he was hired to be Premier League Chief Executive. So I guess what I want to ask you, Duncan, is will the fans buy it this time? Do they fancy a little winter holiday in Miami or somewhere to watch the team play? Or do you think there'll be a repeat of the 2014 debacle where effectively the whole thing was laughed out of court? I would expect there'd be very significant resistance from um, UK-based fans to this. Um, and I think there will also be significant resistance from football authorities to this. Um, we've seen La Liga attempt to uh, play fit regular season fixtures outside Spain. And we've seen FIFA uh, block that move um, because they don't want... Um, domestic leagues playing on opposition territory because it, it, the, the reasoning is that undermines the domestic league in the particular country they decide to move games to. You can you're, see the. Sorry, I was going to say, Dunk, you're referring here to Girona versus Barcelona last season, where La Liga, um, sorry, uh, yeah, La Liga made a representation, didn't they, to the Spanish Federation to ask for that game to be played in Miami. And a similar representation has been made in the last week to play uh, Villarreal versus Atletico Madrid in Miami's Hard Rock Stadium on December the 6th this season, which is currently being considered. Yes, and you can see the attraction to La Liga and to the Premier League to do this. Um, uh, And obviously you've explained that this is driven by broadcasting rights. Um, For many years, the the Premier League's main source of money was domestic, um, basically satellite broadcast rights. Um, That has now got to the stage where it's um, superseded by global um, broadcasting rights and the the direction of travel is such that they don't expect um, the UK rights 
to grow any larger, um, which is understandable given the, the, the scale of them already and, um, and the economic conditions of the UK and the, you know, the, the damage that, that looks like it's about to be inflicted upon the UK economy by leaving the European Union, which will have um, repercussions for football, not just in broadcast broadcast rights, but also in the recruitment of players. Um, therefore, if you're if you're broadening out and you have Amazon and Disney and other um, American-based providers in your sites as the source of additional revenue um, to grow your product, um, and remember that it's not just broadcast revenues that are an issue here for the Premier League. Um, a lot of clubs feel that they have uh, maxed out the commercial revenues that they can re receive from selling merchandise, selling sponsorship uh, to companies. Uh, and, and you see that most notably with Manchester United, who were the remain the leaders in terms of having the largest amount of commercial revenue of any Premier League club, um, basically pioneered um, the focus on commercial revenue um, way back to when uh, Peter Kenyon was in charge of the club and they, they um, built a, a huge um, superstore to sell shirts and other merchandise to their fans direct at the stadium. Um, you look at, at their financial results over the last um, several years and their commercial revenue is flatlined. So the owners want to increase the money they make from football. Um, you have this American interest and uh, it does seem that commercially um, it would be an intelligent strategy to take one or two, you know, preferably two Premier League games a season and play them in probably a short burst around uh, a winter break uh, in the States. If you make it two games, then you remove that um, 39th game issue of, of, uh, of one team um, losing uh, a home uh, fixture. So you, uh, each team would lose one home fixture and, and one away fixture and it would balance out. But you take the game over there, you know you can sell um, the, the, the rights to watch the game live in the stadium for a large amount of money. Um, you know there's uh, merchandising opportunities that will come about through having your teams in America for that period of time. And, um, and hopefully you make the... The, the, the broadcast right deals more appealing to American-based companies and therefore increase the, the overall revenue of the league. So it's, um, it's a fascinating proposal. And I think there could be the difference here um, from when the 39th game proposal was, was kicked out by the clubs is that they are seeking extra sources of revenue. So the, the economic uh, background to this, the economic climate, is such that um, what is required politically to get it through the Premier League clubs and for them to vote it through is easier. Um, therefore, the issue becomes reaction of supporters and, more importantly, reaction of governing bodies, whether they're prepared to allow this or not. We have um, spoken on the pod in recent weeks, Duncan, about FIFA and UEFA desperately trying to um, cling on, if you like, to their uh, ownership of things like the Champions League and the World Cup, etc., uh, because of the threats of breakaways, both global and European, etc., etc. Uh, there is a political element to this um, as well, which is, of course, um, I know many people don't like to make this picture uh, in their head, 
but um, I'm going to remind you, since it's near Halloween anyway, of um, Gianni Infantino on the lawn of the White House with the president talking about um, having to get a third term so that he's still in charge uh, when the World Cup goes to the USA in 2026. Now, clearly, this is part of a political move uh, in terms of the American sports uh, authorities, in, in which case, obviously, including the MLS, but also um, the governing bodies there, with regards to promoting football uh, ahead of um, a, a world, potential World Cup in the USA and getting this into the calendar, the way that we've seen Qatar uh, do this um, in recent years as well, with trying to attempt uh, club match, matches, albeit not competitive ones in this sense. But with La Liga trying to do it, with the Premier League being asked if they would be open to do it, you can see there's going to be a, a huge financial gain, potentially. And we're not just talking about the money the league's paid for playing a game there. We are talking about, as you mentioned, Duncan, um, revenues being potentially increased, uh, the revenues which are currently uh, maxing out and indeed will be declining as well. And therefore, clubs, I think, will have to face up to what is a new economic reality in the coming five to ten years. And I do think that um, by drip-feeding this kind of idea into not just the supporters' minds, but also uh, clubs, authorities, including FIFA and UEFA, they hope that they will bring people's opinion round to it being a case of simply, well, if you want to keep the game uh, at its peak, the way that it has been in the last 10, 15 years financially, and we can afford to increase salaries and transfer fees are affordable, et cetera, et cetera, then we have to consider going down this road. Yeah, look, there's a huge political commercial battle between um, football's governing authorities, which the major clubs are involved in, about how the revenue of football gets divvied up amongst the clubs and amongst those organisations. So you have the um, one of the most prominent individuals in European football, Andre Agnelli, who is um, in charge of Juventus, pushing very hard for a European Super League. Um, and if you talk to people who monitor these situations closely, they will say that uh, the establishment of a European Super League is inevitable. Um, it's a question of who controls it and how it's built up. UEFA are trying to remain in charge of that process. They want to retain um, the rights to uh, the, mo the best um, competition in club football. They have them with the Champions League. They're scared they're going to lose them. So um, are prepared to compromise um, to set something up which satisfies the biggest clubs and allows them to retain control of that. Gianni Infantino, he fancies um, grabbing a bit of that pie as well. He has proposals for um, a, a much different, a much expanded um, Club World Cup. Um, with financing on offer from Middle East, uh, in particular from Saudi Arabia. Um, and you know, if you, you're talking about the Premier League going and playing games in the United States, um, Infantino and FIFA could set up what would potentially be a world league um, or a world club cup um, played over uh, an extended period of time and put some of those games in the States. Um, targeting the same re revenue, targeting the same commercial opportunities. Um, that's what's going on at the moment. You have this battle over um, over the future shape of football and, um, and it's of fundamental importance to not just those biggest clubs, but every other club um, down the pyramids in, in, in professional football at present. 
That is another one we'll be monitoring for you, of course, very much in its infantino, if you'll forgive the pun. <laughs> uh, but it, certainly something that's going to be part of the discussion uh, for the next months and years regarding people just sticking their toe in the water and trying to find out what the temperature is for this kind of thing. Now, you can never accuse us on the transfer window of being undemocratic because Duncan himself has taken it upon himself to run his own poll over the last, uh, I think, 12, 24 hours, Duncan? Just a long? couple of hours. Two, three, oh, just four a couple hours. of hours. I think it's been oh. running now. Oh, okay, even better. Uh, because, of course, uh, so Mr Ed Woodward made some interesting comments at Manchester United's annual all-staff meeting, followed by a meeting with some journalists as well, uh, where um, he kind of expanded on those comments, albeit not on the record. And, um, Duncan, just tell us what your poll was and what the outcome was before we even begin to get into what uh, Woodward said. Well, it was it was focused on, on something that... Um... Manchester United themselves highlighted on their website um, when reporting on this um, all-club meeting, which was held um, just after, I believe, the Alkmaar 0-0 result um, at the beginning of the month. So they they, they say that Woodward um, talked out to dispel notions about the commercial side holding sway over matters on the pitch. Um, and then the, the important um, quote from, from Woodward was, there is a myth that we have non-football people making decisions, and I think it's insulting to the brilliant people who work on the football side in this club. Many of the senior staff on the football side of the club have been in their roles for over 10 years. Some of our scouts have worked with us for more than 25 years. We've expanded our recruitment department in recent years, and we believe this now runs in an efficient and productive way. Player recommendations and decisions are worked on by this department, by the first team manager and his staff not by senior management. Um, so uh, I simply asked uh, the supporters whether they believed that it was a myth um, that uh, non-football people uh, were making dis football decisions. Um, and, uh, and the response has been that 92% uh, of the people um, asked that question um, think it isn't a myth and that... Uh, Edward Woodward's got it wrong again in, in one of his public statements. Now, at this point, we should point out we were um, hoping uh, to have the soundtrack of Shaggy's It Wasn't Me being played in the background, but technically that's not available to us at this time. It could be copyright, it could be rights, we're not sure. But certainly Edward Woodward seems to be Duncan uh, effectively saying, uh, I don't make the decisions, therefore everything that's gone wrong under my stewardship isn't my fault. Uh, which is astonishing, because even though he says that, or admits, I should say, there was some dysfunctional recruiting decisions uh, after Sir Alex Ferguson retired in 2013, he has admitted that he himself was in charge of recruiting the recruiters. So how can he possibly claim that there's no non-football people making decisions when it's clearly the case that non-football people are making decisions? He even admitted himself as well that he said that Matt Judge, who can you remind me, is corporate development manager? Is that correct? Um, some title along those lines. Corporate development is definitely part of his title, which doesn't sound to me like a football role, uh, despite the fact he is effectively the head of scouting. But um, Woodward described his job as looking at the business side of recruitment as well as the footballing side. Okay, 
we'll take your, your word from that, Edward Wood. Um, but that he also claims Solskjaer has the veto on signing players, but crucially, Woodward is the one who signs it off. So in actual fact, the final decision goes to Woodward. So how can he possibly tell us that he's not effectively in charge of the final say in recruitment when he is the one who actually is the final say on recruitment? Well, indeed, and both um, Ed Woodward and Matt Judge, their backgrounds are in banking. Um, they were not involved in football clubs before um, being employed by Manchester United. Uh, Matt Judge is the man who um, negotiates transfers and contracts. He's the primary um, point of contact on deals with um, clubs that, that Manchester United want to buy players from um, and with agents. So when um, in the past summer, uh, United were exploring the possibility of signing particular players. And we've had these briefings from Manchester United proudly pointing out that when they signed a right back, they had a list of, I think it was 200 potential right backs that they, they scouted thoroughly and uh, put through their analysis system and then came out with a, a, a further list of 10 um, top options who they then um, uh, vetted from a personality perspective as well as from a, a football perspective and whittled that down, I think it was to a three-man list um, to work on uh, actually getting a deal in place. That three-man list is the one that um, Matt Judge would come into play, uh, calling the clubs in question and asking um, for pricing and availability, etc. Um, and as you say, ultimately, the man signing off on the decisions is Ed Woodward, the man um, fundamentally involved in the strategy of the club uh, and certainly in collaboration with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, with Mick Phelan, with, with the recruitment staff, that huge recruitment staff that he hired, uh, uh, used a city consultancy firm to put in place just before you know, Josie Mourinho came in as manager, um, is in charge of. So um, either you say, well, it isn't, a myth at all and non-football people are making decisions uh, one of them being the non-football person who's just said those words to the entire Manchester United staff or Edward Bird perceives himself as being a football person uh, and perceives Matt Judge as being a football person on the basis that they have worked in the very much in the coal face of football transfers and recruitment um, since uh, Woodward was promoted to executive vice chairman. Um, let's just take it to um, someone who uh, is ex an expert on the club in the sense of having worked in a very prominent position at the club in recent years. Um, I sent through that uh, Manchester United um, article on the website to this person this morning um, to get the response um, with the quote, um, there is a myth that we have non-football people making football decisions. The, the, the first response was a line of four laughing emojis. If you worked with Woodward in the club, and your response is to that um, non-football people making decisions statement as such, I think, uh, I think the fans' analysis that um, they don't believe what Woodward is saying is true is a, is a very fair um, analysis of that situation. One of the other um, standouts for me, Duncan, has been uh, 
this description that Manchester United need X factor players. Now, this obviously again came from whatever source that was briefing yesterday. And that was that Van Hal changed the recruitment system that uh, United apparently wanted. And the example given was Dali Blind, who is described as, although a fine footballer, does not have the X factor required to play for Manchester United. Now, the X factor, um, if you try and look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, or indeed if you ask someone, they'd tell you it was a very popular television programme, both here and in the United States of America. But the um, fundamental principle of what is the X factor is either it doesn't exist, or if it does exist, it's very rare. But let's say for realistic terms, it's simply an entertainment show myth. Yet, the executive vice chairman of Manchester United is using it as a means of describing the kind of player that Manchester United not should be recruiting, but should be playing. Now, given if it's very rare or doesn't exist, how do you fill a matchday squad of 18 players with all X-Factor players, Duncan? Please enlighten us. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I simply don't know. And I don't really think um, it's something that has been thought through properly by Ed Woodward. I'm, I, and that's the impression I get with all of this. Um, he didn't have these all-staff meetings in the past where he made these mission statement um, speeches, uh, I'm told um, by people who were at the club previously. Um, if you read through it, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to be saying. Um, you know, talking about how good their academy is and how they have a strong competitive advantage in that area and will continue to focus and invest in it. If you, you listen to the podcast we did with Jonathan Northcroft recently, um, he very astutely pointed out that uh, Manchester United have decided to go down this youth route and focus on something that they actually haven't been very good at in, in recent seasons and, and been outstripped by clubs like Liverpool, um, Manchester City and Chelsea, um, Southampton has, has always been the case, have had a better academy than them. So they're focusing on academies, talking about how many academy players they have in the team and this focus on youth. As someone else pointed out, um, eight Premier League managers have started a teenager in the division this season. Solskjaer is yet to do that. So when he's talk we're talking about academy products, we're talking about guys in the main like Marcus Rashford, who is um, is actually hugely experienced by Premier League standards. Yes, he's young. Um, yes, he's in his early 20s. But he's played um, hundreds of games for Manchester United. He's played over 30 games, um, full international matches for England. Yet, um, is on a run, I think, of, of one open play goal in 17 or 18 games for the club. Um, and, and the general tenor of... Uh, we've got it right. Our recruitment is sorted. You can see from this summer window um, that we've been successful. And um, what does he say? It provides a base camp for us to build and grow from as we start our new journey. It, it's extraordinary. Um, it really is, given given where they are, given that this speech was given in the midst of a of a period, uh, well, just after they draw nil-nil away at Alkmaar um, without having a shot on target in the entire game. Um, in a Europa League tie, something which is very rarely done by any club of any stature. Um, 
in a run in which their last open play Premier League goal was over seven weeks ago. Um, with two wins in, in 13 matches, with the, the manager Woodward appointed on a, a, to a three-year contract, yet to win an, a, an away game in any competitive match since he got that contract, it, it just doesn't stack up to the performances on the field. And yet there seems to be this belief that um, they've got everything sorted now. They've got this brand new X-Factor uh, depend on youth, play attacking dynamic football strategy, um, which will turn them into um, Premier League winners and uh, and Champions League winners again. Where's the evidence of this? I mean, where is the evidence of the dynamic attacking football? I, I don't see it in, in the way they're playing. And statistically, um, there's very little evidence that anything substantial has changed from the first half of last season which was supposedly a complete disaster and which um, resulted in the previous manager being sacked. Probably a correct dismissal. Even Jose Mourinho himself accepts that it was probably right for them to dismiss him. But where's the difference? Yet this, the current um, period of underperformance, which is actually in, in, in terms of points, uh, significantly poorer than where they were at the start of last season, is perceived as being the base camp for a new journey um, back to the, the, you know, the hallowed heights where they expect Manchester United's DNA to take them. So two things on that, Duncan. And these are the terms base camp to start a new journey is exactly the kind of corporate BS I've heard at various <laughs> events, which involve mostly commercial and marketing. That's no surprise. The second thing, it seems to me, given performance and results, the only thing that Manchester United currently have in common with the X Factor is that they possibly are just inviting punters to come along to training, turn up an audition, and if they're any good, they might get a chance of a place on the bench or even the team these days. Who knows? I mean, uh, it could be a successful commercial strategy for them to set up a reality TV programme in which um, Billy Gunnar Solskjaer, Mick Phelan and, and Matt Judge sit on the, sit behind the bench and uh, watch <laughs> watch uh, young footballers juggle a ball on the stage and decide uh, if they're the X Factor. If it's, if it's not yet a reality TV show, it's certainly a soap opera, that's for sure. The next instalment of that soap opera, Duncan, of course, is a huge game at Old Trafford on Sunday. Manchester United versus Liverpool. Um, I think you alluded to it earlier. I think for the in history, Liverpool have never been more of an odds-on favourite to beat Manchester United, especially Old Trafford. Um, most average odds for United win are around 5-2. to two. Now, 5-2 to two in a 11v11 is highly unusual, actually, of two teams of that stature. So um, that tells you just how much faith there is that Manchester United might get a result. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was speaking uh, earlier today about the match. Duncan, I know that you saw some of what he said. Um, didn't slip into the, let's call it the David Moyes trap door of saying Liverpool were favourites. But at the same time, um, could he possibly convince anyone that, in, that the result will be anything other than a Liverpool win? Well, I think one of the quotes Solskjaer had was that it was the perfect game for players and fans um, to play against Liverpool. Um, let's hope for his sake that he, he still thinks this is the perfect game after it's finished. Well, I think he was said, talking about Liverpool fans and players, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe he was talking about Manchester United fans and players, but I mean, it has to be said that Jurgen Klopp's record at um, Old Trafford isn't a good one. Um, hasn't won there. As, uh, as Liverpool manager. Um, so 
you do have that mental side of of going over the you know the final hurdle of, of actually defeating your 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 huge opponents on their own turf. Um, you know that your Manchester United players will be motivated for this. Um, they're coming off an international break. They're coming off a lot of criticism. Um, you have to say the way Solskjaer sets his team up, um, there is the possibility of them getting a result in a game like this because it's very counter-attacking um, strategy. Um, it's I mean, The idea is to sit back, let the other team come to you, which I think Liverpool will do, given the res- run of results they're on and try and nick a goal with pace. Um, and it's not impossible that it, that, that happens for them. Uh, and and therefore, they could potentially come out of the game with um, you know a, 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 what would be perceived as a great result and what would be a, a huge fill-up to um, Solskjaer going forward. But there are a reason why the bookmakers' odds are set up like that. And, um, uh, you know, on, on average... Um, assuming the ball bounces straight and the VR doesn't do um, something stupid, then your expectation would have to be that Liverpool would win the game. I think we've, we've spoken um, before about Liverpool players and Liverpool as a club, their mentality in terms of getting over the line in a Premier League title race, which clearly, you know, almost three decades without a top flight title is not a good uh, return for a club like Liverpool. And they have had some interestingly late and slightly fortunate results out of their eight-game winning streak so far this season. If you're Jurgen Klopp and you you obviously are looking at your best chance to win the title probably uh, for Liverpool in your tenure, certainly, never mind the, the amount of time it's taken Liverpool to get into this position given the uh, points they're already ahead, do you try and do you go for managed throat? They just because they they're expecting almost to lose, or do you play your normal sort of fairly cautious game and hit them on the break, and keep faith with that particular tactic, even though you know that you've got the beating of Manchester United, and that if you do make a mistake, then United do have a certain amount of you know, counter attack in themselves, and that's exactly what's happened to Liverpool at Old Trafford over the last three four years anyway. I think um, I think. Klopp can play the standard game. Um, if if he, he doesn't need to chase after Manchester United in this game, if, if he sets up as his team set up, be solid at the back, um, look to take advantage when they have their attacks. Um, they have such power in that front line to score goals. Once they have, and remember, very, very good at set pieces, which has not been the forty of Manchester United for some time. Once they've got one goal, then you'd think the odds would be that they'll get several more once Manchester United are for, forced to come to them. So that would that would be the percentages approaches. Don't do anything dramatic. Um, wait to score your goal when it comes, and, and then uh, pick Manchester United off when they um, when they open up as a result of, of being a goal down and being at home and having to chase the game. It has been pointed out, but it's always the case, Duncan, that you know um, Liverpool have got probably more players than United coming back from far and wide off international duty. Obviously, the Brazilian boys uh, returning from international duty. Uh, Mo Salah as well. Uh, I'm not sure that the um, with the advent of um, privately chartered planes, etc., with... Um, luxurious double beds and mattresses and that makes a lot of difference now with regards to players 
<clears throat> traveling long journeys to get back. So I'm not sure that's going to have an influence on the game. Um, and I do think that with it being played 4.30 on Sunday afternoon, that's probably as much to Liverpool's advantage as anyone. Yeah, when the game's on the Sunday and the, and the late kickoff, you've got a lot of recovery time there. And Manchester United have a significant number of international players too. So the difference between the two teams, I don't think, is great. Liverpool's conditioning has been far better. You know, they have a remarkable um, record of of keeping their most important players on the pitch, um, having them play two games in a week, um, even um, very little rotation in in the squad and. In the, the past year from Jurgen Klopp, he seems to have come up with some uh, miracle formula that uh, allows them to be on a different physical level from the opposition and, and certainly are going to be way ahead of uh, Manchester United who have picked up more soft tissue injuries over the um, international break. I, I believe they now have had 11 different players um, uh, from their first team squad suffer injuries already um, just 10 games into this campaign. Well, um, I'm not sure what I'm most excited about, whether it's the game itself or uh, coming on to Monday's pod with uh, Duncan and talking about <laughs> the outcome of it. And on that basis, of course, uh, we'd love to hear your views. You'll all be watching the game on Sunday afternoon, I'm sure, where you're at the game itself or where you're watching on TV or the highlights. Please, obviously, tweet us your responses to Manchester United versus Liverpool um, because we'd love to hear from you. And also that gives us a flavour of how you're, you're all feeling about the outcome and what happens next uh, for Manchester United, probably in particular, but also for Liverpool, should they sustain the first defeat of the season. Uh, we look forward to reading them. And of course, um, we'll be talking about that on Monday. This is Friday's podcast as we speak, and of course that means it's time for the quick-fire round. We couldn't resist it, and we don't apologise for it, but we are going to do the traditional Manchester United versus Liverpool combined team. Um, Duncan, uh, I think you've got a very good idea of what your team will be, so I'm probably just going to ask you to name it, uh, and then I will join in afterwards. Um, I think we're going to do the quickest quick-fire round ever here because the Manchester United-Liverpool combined team with David De Gea and Paul Pogba, both sidelined this weekend, is the Liverpool team. That will always be the record for the quick-fire round because normally, as everyone knows who listens regularly, it's the slow-fire round, especially when Duncan's involved. It normally takes about 11 minutes, I think, is the average. Um, OK, uh, can I contradict you on that? Well, maybe, I don't know. Because I've got a goalkeeper in mind who is, you know, all round and brilliant. He can pass the ball, you know, 40, 50 yards. A back four, always dependable, sensational when it comes to just blocking teams out. A midfield three where passing is absolutely at the optimum. And a front three where you just can't even get past because the fact is the passing into uh, the players is amazing and a brilliant penalty taker as well. So my one to eleven would, of course, be James Milner. <laughs> So there you go. Uh, on Sunday, it will be James Milner versus Manchester United. Let's see if uh, you know. Let's see how long um, Manchester United can hold the great James Milner out. Is that is that Dolly the James Milner as cloned at Edinburgh University? If only they could do that, they would provide the greatest team in, in earth. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> I think actually I'm hearing that, that my friend uh, Jimmy is is currently donating his DNA to the scientists so that that actually can be the case for some future football team. Um, so let's see the, the James Milner 11 as soon as we can, please, scientists of the world. 
That brings to an end our Friday podcast. Thank you very much uh, for listening. And also, uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, then please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. To continue the debate, then please do so at Transfer Podcast, at Duncan Castles, and for me, at Garbo SJ. That helps us expand the community and means that we can all get more engaged in the debate. As I said before, we're all looking forward to uh, the game on Sunday as well as other football through the weekend. If you're listening on the way to this podcast on the way to the game on Saturday or Sunday, then we hope you enjoyed it. Um, And join us on Monday for that big debate that I'm sure we'll be having regarding what happens next at two of England's biggest clubs. We shall see you then on Monday. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 